Hell yeah. All right. And are, are gains appropriate? Yep. Ill-gotten or otherwise? <laughs> yep, we're good to go. Good to go. How you doing, fellas? Not bad. Not good. bad. I am bushed. Yeah. Mm. But um, I feel quite relaxed and accomplished. Um, I got a lot of heavy lifting done yesterday. Yeah, your basement's looking great. Yeah. it's uh, that, We mean that literally. It's not like a weird metaphor. <laughs> uh, uh, it's not innuendo what would that be an innuendo for like i don't cute, know like manscaping or something maybe like, maybe yeah maybe, maybe my feet yeah maybe it's a, a foot thing okay right. yeah, yeah. My, my basements no we are talking about the uh the level of chris's home that is below ground yeah so i had a nice heavy work weekend where i had a bunch of friends come over for lots of pizza and beer and moving all of the um hardwoods and then the softwood uh underflooring out of the basement which will um eventually get plastic and um cement on top to get the radon down because i don't want lung cancer yeah, so we've been podcasting in a just radon-filled <laughs> building for uh, over a year now. It's been literally rad. <laughs> so in addition to our Patreon, we will have a GoFundMe for our future medical bills. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, radon's a big problem in this area. I don't we know. We have radon in our basement, too. It's not as bad as yours, but... Do you have a slab? No. No, it's it's still... We should we should test again, but it is... Yeah, uh, it's on again. the high end of acceptable. Okay, right. so like four picocuries yeah, per... No, it was like two and a half or something. Oh, yeah, that's not bad. I'm at 13, so... Yeah, so we're all gonna... Yeah, so... <laughs> we're all gonna Patreon.com slash Ironweeds. It'll be the, uh, the medical fund for our inevitable... And also, I smoked for like 17 years, so... Yeah, that's not know, gonna help. It's not gonna be good. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to something a little brighter of a topic. Our friend Mitch shared on Twitter, I saw as we were uh, coming over, they shared this clip from like a British or like a, U- I, I don't even, it, what's the politically correct term? British, is that right? Do we st- are we still island allowed to say people. British? They're the, island These people. disgusting, uh, yeah. foul-toothed island people. Yeah, no, I'm bee, sorry. bean eaters. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, beef eater, right? Like the, the gin? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that, that but they also love beans. Yeah. Well, who doesn't love beans? I. They're all right. Yeah. I'm not, not gonna not have like, one for breakfast though. Yeah. Not like, like the British love beans. Yeah. Nobody loves beans like the British. But so it's a, it's about a five minute clip from this radio show where the host and forgive I do not know this person's name. I am I have no familiarity with him and we whatsoever. Refuse to learn. Yeah. I don't care. Um. But it is the the audio of it is really good. So I'm actually just gonna. It's about. It's about six minutes. So if you don't care to listen to it, you can skip ahead. But I do think it's really good. I, I uh, suggest that you stick around. So I'm just going to play it and we'll kind of And I have pause. not heard this yet. Yeah, so neither, this yeah. neither, be, neither yeah. of the guys have heard this. I think Raw it's reactions. really incredible. And we don't talk a ton about UK politics on our show, but I feel like this little snippet of what's happening in the UK with Brexit and everything, what's been going on for years now, is very runs parallel to so many of the most important political forces in the United States for the last several years, like in the in the kind of Trump and alt-right era. So I think it's good. All right, so I'm going to start playing that right now. What's going to be short-term, Ash, Lee? Uh, personal loss, personal financial loss. Oh. Um, but they they did, to, to be fair, before the vote, they did tell you there wouldn't be any. Well, I think. Well, I was I was never naive to the fact that there there would be. I mean, I believe there would be, um, and I was willing to take that sacrifice just for the for the independence and the um, just you know so we control our own laws. I mean, you know, you, you know what I do now, don't you? 
What's that? I, I ask you which law it is you're really looking forward to not having to obey anymore. Um, any. It, it, oh, no, not, that's that's right, any. Point. Yeah, any. Yeah, any, any. It's, yeah, it's, so give me one. Um, <laughs> the shape of your bananas. <laughs> it's not funny, is it? Well, it, it, it's, it's not. Because pound, um, the pound's uh, at the lowest it's been since 1985, and, and, and you just said oh, any law, and I'm just asking you to name one. We, we both know that bananas was a lie made up by Boris Johnson. So what, what is the is, law, actually? Because you didn't vote. You knew you were going to take short-term economic damage. You knew that all your customers would do as a, as a newly formed electrician company. Every single customer in yep. the country, potentially, is going to be worse off than they were before the vote. So I'm just wondering what yep. those laws are that you won't have to obey anymore that made you vote for this short-term economic hit. Well, it wasn't the laws, which was the main, which was the main reason. It was the, just the main reasons. reason you gave me, wasn't it, a minute ago? I love how yeah, he doesn't sorry, let them get away yeah, with fucking no, anything. Can you name one yet? Um, I wouldn't be able to, no. There's, there's multiple arguments. There's, on, there's immigration, there's oh. controlled immigration. But again, it's not about, it's not about, you know, I'm not xenophobic. I'm not xenophobic. But what's interesting, actually, and I hope you won't say this the wrong way, what's interesting yeah. is that you spend five minutes pretending that you've got proper political arguments or economic understanding and then as all of those claims fall away you're just left with foreigners if brexit means falling off a cliff edge so be it i, I salute your honesty philip i salute your honesty that's what we voted for absolutely we, voted. we, we voted to this fall off a cliff edge smeagol? and to drive into a burning <laughs> building these are different these are different colors oh, okay. there's a few different colors can i is there any way we can prove that you rang in um, of your own volition, that you're not an actor, that you haven't been put up to this, or because I'm now going to get bombarded with emails saying, I'm going to get bombarded with emails saying, oh, carefully handpicked and filtered from all the cowards who haven't got the guts to ring in themselves. Can we prove that you're real? I've stood, I've stood for UKIP four times. There you as go. A candidate. You see? I'm an ex UKIPer. That bingo. Real, the real deal. What did you vote for? We voted for, 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 for pain and oblivion. And just talk me through the positives, the things that when I put on the scales that we're going to be poorer, that we're not going to be able to trade with the largest single market in the world, that we're going to be damaged. Oh, well, the outgoing head of the CBI says that large parts of the car industry today are going to go extinct if we don't stay in the customs union. So I put all that on the scales on this side, all the measurable you materials. Mentioned, you haven't mentioned immigration. Exactly that. So you put, you put on the other side the stuff that really makes it all worthwhile. Go. Immigration is the greatest threat that's faced us yes. uh, since the Second World War. And it now we go mask off. Immigration, Absolutely. immigration yes. leads to third world ghettos. It does, yes. That, you, can, that, you can't that, tell here, but he's being dryly sarcastic. With yeah. his, like, you know. Right, you are. That's why, yes. that's why we voted to leave. It is, yes. Uh, around the southeast, around the southeast yes. what you have essentially are cesspits. Cesspits. Third, third world cultures whites whites, whites. are actually in a minority in a minority, in a minority. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's a great threat to it's, social stability and it is but you know that calling the di- directly from a decrepit castle contains no countries <laughs> that are not majority white that's not the point that's not the point what is the, what is the point <laughs> <laughs> And I went in there t- three Sundays ago because I had to go in an emergency. I walked into the into the accident emergency. As I said to your, to your researcher, 120 people in there. I was lucky if I saw three or four white faces. It's okay if you live now, there. Now, that is there. racist. 
No, it's, no, that last bit is. No, no, it isn't, because you're, 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 you're forming an opinion of people or their, or their value based on their colour, because we're talking about your reasons for leaving the European Union, and then you mentioned the fact that there weren't any white people in Northwick Pass Hospital. So which European Union countries are, are, are essentially non-white? Probably none. Do you know what? You are right. I was wrong. I you... to, for, some, for some reason, for some reason, for some reason, go on, go on. I thought we were better off. And clearly, I was wrong. Well, don't beat yourself up, Bill, mate. Listen to all the people that told you we would be. I've, I've spent the whole morning telling them. They've been whispering in your ear, not well, just for two actually, and a half years, for 30 years. I was wrong. I am so sorry. Oh, Bill, mate, come on. <laughs> what have I done to my country? I'm so sorry. Bill, 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 yeah. there's 17.4 million people. You can't take all the blame on your own shoulders, my friend. Come on. And look at the effort. These people are billionaires. They own the Ritz, Bill. They own the Daily Telegraph. They wouldn't have spent all that money and put all that effort into trying to persuade you to act against your own interests if they didn't think it was plausible. I'm not going to let you blame yourself, Bill. All right? No. Blame them, Bill. Blame them, Bill. Do not blame yourself. I'm sorry, James. Don't be sorry. Be, Be angry, all right? And if you're not angry yet, I'll get angry on your behalf. That, that, right there. That's why I've been doing what I've been doing for the last two and a half years. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like a montage of like a whole bunch of calls. Yeah, like four calls, I think. And it's what's really interesting to me is the way the host deals with these callers is, you know, for the people who are just bullheaded, who refuse to acknowledge the fact that they're the main reason they voted for this was their racism. He really like has no sympathy, no pity. But then you get to that last caller who is somebody who expresses genuine, remorse. sincere remorse for yeah. what they've done. Yeah, grown ass um, man is balling on, on the radio. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, the Brits, like the famous yeah. stiff upper lip, yeah, like, that's like, not, that's, a thing. Yeah. that's not like a normal, you know, um, and, and the way that he's just so gentle with him and recognizes that like, Yes, individual people make decisions, certainly, but there's a much more complex truth underlying that, which Mm. is the fact that we are susceptible to propagandizing and we are, you know, and and don't think that like you're somehow above it. All of us are susceptible to that kind of programming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's been and he says, you know, this hasn't been going on for two and a half years. This has been going on for 30 years. They've been whispering in your ear. It's the same thing that's happening in this country. And it's one of the reasons that for me anyway, it's really important to never write off all right-wingers as a lost cause. Mm-hmm. Now, look, is there are there tons of people on the right who are just virulent racists and that's the only fucking thing they care about? Absolutely, yeah. those people exist. And those people, yes, write them off. But there's also just a lot of people who are fucking scared and the world is complicated and they happen to have consumed the right mix of media and had the right number of social influences in their lives where that is just their truth. Yeah, there's a billion dollar industry there to propagandize them for the nefarious purposes of a ruling class that doesn't give a fuck about any of them. Exactly. And so, you know, I mean, look, 94% of Republicans currently approve of Donald Trump's performance. Those people... Or fucking shits. Like, fuck <laughs> so 94% them. of them. <laughs> well, 94% of Republicans, but keep in mind a yeah. lot of people who voted for Donald Trump Weren't were people yeah. who had never voted, like who had, who had just totally dropped out of. Donald Trump harnessed what we hoped Bernie Sanders would be able to harness, right? Anger. Which is those, well, those people who have felt disenfranchised from electoral mm-hmm. politics and who have just not given a shit for much of their, if not all of their adult lives. And now something activates them. 
And so, you know, those are really the people that I'm kind of talking about. Mm. I don't know. And I'm also talking out of my ass. Like, who the fuck knows? All this shit's complicated. It's all overdetermined by a million and a half factors that it's, you know, hard to know where change actually comes from. But it's very, like, that last caller, when I first watched this, I, I'm, I'm a very emotive person listening to somebody else crying kind of always but but i felt like very touched by that last caller yeah and just like how you know how racked with guilt he is so it reminds me of the conversation i had with that guy on the bike path where like he was like you know i think the problem is uh these kids are uh too entitled and then i was like wait what and then I, yeah. we had like a brief conversation about the material reality difference between like the coming Zoomer generations, like life expectancy and like the planet being like more and more hostile to like complex life, like, yeah. you know, within their lifetime. And, you know, his whole thing, tune change. And it, 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 I could tell it wasn't because he just didn't want to fight. It was like, he was like, oh, yeah. It's yeah, I guess they that's a bigger set of issues. Yeah, they don't investigate why they believe these things because a lot of them have just been propagandized. And we don't teach critical thinking skills in this country. We don't teach media literacy. We don't teach like any kind of like rhetoric. There's no educational program for people to learn how to d avoid those pitfalls. And I was thinking about this earlier, Chris. It's kind of funny that you brought up the entitlement thing because... I was doing the litter boxes this morning and I looked at the Stewart's bags for folks who aren't in this region. Stewart's is like a corner store, gas station, grocery type place. Goat. And they have fabulous, they used to have these fabulous plastic bags, right? Yeah. That are really thick and like Six nice. Mil. And Troy could, could recently. kill an entire duck. <laughs> One bag. <laughs> Several, a family of yeah, ducks. Come yeah, on. All, you could put a whole family of little baby ducks in there and just tie it off. <laughs> They'd be dead instantly. <laughs> but, you know, Troy instituted its plastic bag ban. And so yep. now Stewart's in Troy. They don't carry those bags anymore. And I was thinking to myself. And like, we are overrun with ducks. <laughs> it, the duck problem is out of control. When is the city council going to do something about these now ducks? I, now I have to run them over myself. Actually, the geese are kind of a problem. Well, but, they're, you know, um, they're, they're getting, they're, you know, getting ready to to fly back uh, south for the winter. But anyway, my point was, I was thinking to myself how much I'm going to, like, I'm very precious with our remaining Stewart's bags because they're really good, for example, like putting broken glass in because yep. they're that thick, heavy-duty thing. Yeah. And then I was like, but you know what? I thought to myself, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, plastic bags, like, yeah. whatever. I can live without them. Which had me thinking about this notion of entitlement. And, like, you know, for that hypothetical or kind of tropey right winger who feels that our generation is so entitled for wanting things like free healthcare and free education and free housing. And like, but what do those people feel entitled to? Plastic straws, plastic bags, how many fucking old getting boomers? A getting a haircut, being able to walk around without a mask on, no matter what the fucking other conditions. And it's like really like kind of staggering when you Think about it that way of like what your worldview, everybody feels entitled, right? Yeah. Because something. everybody feels entitled to something. Because yeah. we are. Yeah. We like are. People like, like, it's part of the so of society, right? Yeah. Why the fuck else live in a society? It's also part of like basic human desires, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. The same way that my cats feel entitled to wet food at 730. And if they don't fucking get it, <laughs> Emma's up in my face screaming at me. You know, we all as living beings with drives and desires, we all feel entitled to something. Yeah, we're and for, what the things you feel entitled to really says a lot about your worldview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think there's also, we can't let out, um, like, the fact that all of those callers were men. Yeah. And, like, the way that I think masculinity intersects with propaganda is interesting because I think a lot of these dudes never get challenged 
right? Because either they, they're with other dudes that just all agree on the same thing, and part of the machismo is all, like, just agreeing on the same thing and, and talking shit about anyone who disagrees with them, right? It's very... In- tribal, yeah. Yeah, very yeah. tribal, in-group sort of formation. Um, and then if anyone challenges it, you have all of these really useful turns of phrase that are mostly, you know, like, calling them calling someone a pussy or something, right? right. The Democrats yeah. want to cut your meat. Senator Kamala Harris said she would change the dietary guidelines of this country to reduce the amount of red meat Americans can eat. Well, I've got some red meat for you. We're not going to let Joe Biden and Kamala Harris cut America's meat. Yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> like my God. Green. Yeah. And uh, here's some red meat for you. Oh, God. Yeah. I do not want my pets as red meat. I was I was really expecting him to say mother cuts my meat. <laughs> and only mother will cut my meat. Yeah. But, you know, so there, uh, so the fact that like this um, radio show host who in a very typical British uh, journalist fashion just like just relentlessly goes after them to like actually say what law you don't want to follow anymore, right? Right. And no one, I guarantee you, no one has ever done that to them before. When was America great? Yeah, Specifically. Yeah. Tell me when. Yeah. Tell me when it was great and and what era we're trying to return America to its greatness of. Right. And, and, And just, and that's how I think a lot of propaganda can survive and thrive is when no one like asks those very, very simple questions because ultimately propaganda is very shallow, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you just like, you have some things that you can say to yourself to you know like when you see suffering in the world right you go uh well we got to make america great and then they'll be fine right or well once we get rid of brexit you know like or that suffering will go suffer. away or they deserve it right and then if you but then if you actually ask well like well no what is like your theory of change here then you either get what is really behind it which is racism and xenophobia or you get oh shit i don't know and oh god what have i done right yeah. you know like, yeah. it's yeah, which and then of course there's also you know like most white women voted for Trump too. So like I mean I'm not saying that it's only. But there, how many of those white it's... women are doing that because that's what their husbands do? Yeah, you know I mean we yeah, we like absolutely. to think that we like we are living in an era of gender equality. I think a lot of people like to think that, but there's also you know white women are just as susceptible to being hung up on patriarchal systems as anybody else. My grandma voted for trump and i guarantee and she's a sweet old lady and i guarantee you the only fucking reason she voted for trump is because she's been doing what my grandfather told her to do for 35 fucking years Hmm. probably more than that i don't even know how long they've been married forever but um you know like that's you can't under and i I don't say that to absolve white women of their guilt when it comes to getting trump elected they're guilty and you're guilty for doing whatever your trash husband told you to do as well um but we know that that's a real phenomenon of people being pressured into these and you know especially women being subject to these systems of oppression i don't know i mean it's 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 so it's so hard, and these are some of the most important political questions for us to grapple with, and I feel like we're not very good at it, even yeah. on the left. Like, we're just not good at dealing with, because you either fall into the actual trap of being a class reductionist, which is, you know, a problem, um, and you can't just, like, chalk Trump up to working class angst the way that a lot of... but. On the other hand, there is some of that to be dealt with. And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of, especially like liberals, who don't want to deal with that at all and who feel that, you know, even talking about the class angst that led to the rise of Trump is just, um, you know, papering over the racism. And like, it has to be both. And we just, 
a lot of it is just the fracturing and the division and like we are doing a very poor job of framing these things and i think it's hampering actual like movement building and organization but that's a whole other thing politics is largely a a, a process of generating and spreading narratives and absolutely yeah. so i've been thinking a lot about the whole the whole response that the right wing is having to even like the most gentle and non-binding discussions about the material reality of like our climate and our ecology and everything else you know like the fact is that our economy and for example animal uh, agriculture like the production of meat and dairy mm-hmm. is massively undercutting the ability for human beings to long-term live on the surface of the planet including like, the coronavirus right like yes. like, like massive super yeah, bugs. So, zo- zootropic yep. diseases yeah yeah they, they come from like three places in the world and they're all parts that have like major uh meat processing it's like kansas the the netherlands like there's a place around there and uh and in china like these yep. three those three regions not all of China, there's, you know, a couple places, but, like, those three places are where, like, humans, fowl, and pork all live in the same place, like, in high densities. And that's where we get a lot of uh, viruses from. Yeah. You know? And uh, so that that is, like, you know, on top of all the environmental degradation, that's a direct result of, of our, you know, factory farming. And yeah. The, yeah, I mean, and, you know, Kamala Harris... Is like so, you know. Mike Pence is able to like use her as this bludgeoning stick to yep. beat people over the head with the fact that the government's going to take away your meat because she, at one point, voiced the most meager support for aspects of the Green New Deal, and, and that but, was like the sin by which she is coming for your meat. She's well, going she advocated to cut your meat. for specifically. She advocated for the FDA dietary guidelines. Mm-hmm. To be shifted so that they put less emphasis on meat, Heaven on red me. meat, uh, and and like basically did a better job of warning about the dangers of red meat with regards to like heart disease and other physical ailments. But because of the kind of simplistic nature of the far right wing mind that says that, oh, well, if we're changing what the FDA puts on a piece of paper of guidelines for what it suggests that you eat, that is equivalent with the government taking away your meat. Yep. When in fact, like, the government is so, the federal government is so fucking ineffectual that they can't do anything with regards to, they like, what you choose. The they subsidize yeah. meat production. Yeah, they do the fucking opposite. Yeah, they'll actually uh, make exceptions to their uh, coronavirus uh, response to allow for unsafe meat packing plants to be forced back into operation because Americans need their meat. And this is, so I guess what I was trying to get at with the whole narrative construction is, like, you know, as as socialists or leftists or materialists or whatever you, you want to call uh, us, um, you know, we're trying, at least I'm trying to put together a narrative that's like based in material reality and like the uh, future of our species and our planet being able to be predicted by looking at trends in consumption and production of various things, etc. So I look at, you know, climate change and meat production and, and looking at how the Amazon is continuing to be burned down to create pasture land for cattle so that more meat can be produced and how all of these trends are like undercutting the ability for our long-term species survival. And I'm like, okay, well, that's all really fucked. And how could we ever do anything other than that? Well, first is to have a worldview that holds all of that material reality sort of front and center to like look at it and tr- try to figure out what we could do to d- 
collectively change that process. So you have to invent the narrative of, okay, what's the problem? We're all consuming too much. We're all producing too much, uh, you know, emissions and we're, we're, uh, you know, destroying too much of the environment on an individual basis, right? Because of our consumer habits and everything else. And that those things need to change. And that the narrative is that we have to envision a world that is going to happen if we don't change, realize how hellish it is, envision a world that would look like if we did change, and then advocate for those changes. And it's so interesting that the right is so effective at pushing the same set of material realities, you know, like the the world as it can be seen through metrics and science, instead of a, a situation of collective individual responsibility that we need to change our habits to survive in the long term. They focus the narrative as these fucking elite rich liberals want to control you and what you can put on your family's plate. These people want your life to be worse. They want it to be more austere and they want it to be more cucked, more soy. They want you to get rid of your freedoms to consume as a red blooded American, red blooded animals. And, you know, it's your God given right. And in fact, it's your obligation to stand up for your right to do all these things because you can't let these fucking elite hypocrites dictate to you what your life needs to be like. Right. And not at all ever discussing what will happen if we don't change our diets. Not at all discussing like the actual reason that we need to do stuff differently. Well, because they, a lot of them just don't believe that we have yeah, to. Yeah, they do don't believe that. Different. Yeah. Well, th- th- that's that's the thing though is that there's if somewhere along the production of that narrative, there's cynicism. Sure. So, somewhere there, there's somebody who oh, actually no. knows that like climate science is real. And oh, no, that, the, like the, the ecology I, is what it is. Should, should say that the, like the 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 leaders know. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, like they they know, and then they they, but then they they give uh, a lot of escape routes to other people, at least ignoring the problem and willfully not understanding it. I remember that I, I had a uh, um my parents had this very good friend. I miss him dearly because he's passed, but he would say that he doesn't believe in climate change because he thinks that it, it it's presumptuous to think that humans can change something as big as the planet it's presumptuous yeah that is a, like that like how like you can't that's a very common yeah that's super common and this you, also, yeah. you consider a smart person I, I thought i thought he was thoughtful and and he was a very sweet man and i i actually i liked him a lot he was a very nice guy yeah and he worked for american airlines right and and uh as a mechanic i, I think and it was um uh yeah and he was like it, it's just like that's the world is resilient. But the humans have been fucking up the planet since we, we fucking yeah, entered it, the scene. And it won't yeah, be, and we're know. still here. Yeah, so that's we're just proof here. that, like... Yeah. But, but, like, 70% right. of the fish aren't, you know? Like, the Pacific Ocean gyre is real. And yet, I can go to the grocery store and get fish. It's true. It's I mean, true. that's For not, now, like, a you know? philosophical. We'll figure it out. But, but you also have to realize that, like, you know, a, a lot of these people like lived through the Cold War. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they lived for Duck decades of their young adult life, believing that they were going to die from the bomb. It was going to happen. They still might. And these people have now grown into late adulthood, and mm-hmm. that never happened. Yep. And that has, and I've seen actually this argument made by people who lived through that Cold War era that, like, well, you know, we thought we were all going to die, and that didn't happen. So, you know, this is just your Cold War. This is just your a bomb of global warming, and it's going to be fine. And we'll adapt. Yeah, I was. Reading, and that's not a philo- that. What I really want to drive home yeah. is that that's not a philosophically 
like vacuous arguments. Yeah, like there's I, a perfectly good material lived basis for having that worldview. I, and and yeah. it's bolstered by all of these decades of propagandizing that they've also been exposed to. Yep. Um, so it's not, you know, like they're just dummies. And it's not just that they're blind to the facts. It's that they, the orbit, the universe of facts that they live in mm-hmm. is just very different than ours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think that that makes somebody like an, an idiot or a lemming or anything like that. It just means that we failed. Essentially, that's on our shoulders. Fair. And I'm not looking like, you know, it's it's the whole, uh, to tie it back to what we just listened to, I'm not looking to try to lambast individuals for being wrong, you know, on, in terms of science. But like, the you know, if I, if I were friends with somebody who's just like, I don't think humans can change the planet, I'd be like, like material reality would beg to differ like we actually have like photographic evidence about how we've changed the planet drastically like i was reading a cnn article this morning about how the uh climate scientists believe that the uh specific areas of the greenland ice sheet is just gone forever like complete completely gone like past point of no return never coming back (laughs) and like you know I'm not, but that can be, yeah. and somebody who's a climate denier can know that that's true and believe that fact, and still say, "Well, we don't need ice. Like, I don't need an ice sheet to exist for yeah. humanity to continue to thrive." Or that that's happened before. There are nat- these natural cycles yeah, of, the, of 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 cooling and thawing. Like they, they there's it's that that's sort of like part of the like epistemological, I don't know, like problem mm-hmm. of of. of of, of climate change is that it's so it's such a complicated problem that you can jump in there and say uh well you know like what about this and that and then it just becomes indeterminable and you can't do anything you, you know you, there's always something else that they can just like throw out because i mean like even the, with this coronavirus or right there are people who think still think that it's as 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 deadly as the common cold or something right yeah. so it's like it's really really fucking hard to get people to think outside of not just like a set of facts right it's a frame that the facts go into yep. and, right? you know, and, and that, yeah and so the fact that that you can't put you just the more facts you throw into it it's going to reorder into that frame not into a new frame like that's not how that follows and you know i guess like the other puzzle piece that uh, those of us, especially like secular folks, often don't get, 65% of Americans identify as Christian. Mm-hmm. Now, not every Christian feels this way, but many, many Christians believe that things like climate change, that's in God's lane. That's something that God decides whether or not ends our species. That's God's not plan. something... Well, yeah, and all, and like especially for, you know, Christians who have like eschatol- eschatological, like end world views, well, if you know, climate change is what takes us out, then that's what God wants. Roll call for Jesus. And these are, you know, if you believe, yeah, like literally, and if you believe that you're going to heaven and all the people that you care about are going to heaven, then what fucking difference does any of that make? That's another, you know, that's a, that's a really profound, like, I think that we often don't, you know, if you, hopefully last week you listened to our Christian Zionism episode, and I like to imagine that that opens up a lot of leftists to a whole new world of thinking that they've never considered, because mm. so few of us are, you know, hardcore evangelical Christians. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, like, 
that is a huge part of everything from, you know, coronavirus to global warming to plastics in the ocean, um, meat consumption. Like for a lot of people, those are just, those are like, that's God's turf. That's not mm. really for us to decide. Mm. And the, and that is a group of people that uh, are well endowed, like not not that they have large penises. They have large penises. They have oh, large, okay, large penises. <laughs> right. No, but they, they, that they, um, the, uh, that they have a lot of money. Yep. They are, they vote as a block. They're very well organized. Which is even more important than not, than having money is that they are extremely well organized. They vote as a block. They fall they, in they, line. They, they, they fall in line. They vote up and down the ticket the way that they that they want. And then they and then on top of that, they have a lot of powerful moneyed interests that agree with them. Right. The, all of that wouldn't matter necessarily unless that you have that top piece. Yeah. Right. So it's a it's a sticky wicket. It is Boy, a howdy. Sticky yeah. wicket. Yeah. I guess. I guess ultimately the point I'm trying to make is is that. The narrative construction is the job to be done Absolutely. in terms of trying to not lose. Like when we say it's our fault it's often, like on yeah. the left collectively, that so many people just don't have the same narrative understanding of like what is going on and what's important. What are the most important causal factors in our society? And like, what, what's the future likely going to look like if we do not, if we don't change and if we change in specific ways, what could another future look like that would be hypothetically way better? And yeah, I think that the, like it being better, I yeah. think would be really nice. Right. Because like so much of the left is like, you know, there's a right saying, but you know, buy as many Hummers as you want. And like, you know, like, eat an entire steak for breakfast and then on the left it's like here's all the things you shouldn't do to be a good person right and mm. it's and it's boycotting it's all these little things that are like sad and inconvenient and, and can yeah a lot of convenience That's a huge part of it is yeah. that we are asking people to dramatically inconvenience themselves in a time where everything is inconvenient right, <laughs> you know, well, right? yeah and then yeah. there's often the, the sort of like uh tragedy of the commons where like liberals and and especially like the media class if they want something like say mask wearing or i don't know reduction in the consumption of our meat they'll do it th through like essentially like guilting and sort of scolding and trying to create a narrative that like you're a bad person you're ver you're signaling a certain set of bad virtues yeah if you don't follow like this prescribed set of activities it turned into and, moralism yeah. yeah moralism essentially and when the right does austerity instead of uh, you know being like hey you really should do this stuff because like it's better for everybody else they shift their austerity into like a weird we're winning actually by like you know privatizing the usps that's actually like a really good thing because like all the fucking libs and like people who want to take away your meat uh are you know trying to use the, the essentially incredibly affordable and convenient uh postal system that by material account every american should be on board with keeping going we're going to destroy that so that they can't take away your meat and that, like, that's a really smart point chris yeah that, like like the usps is so fucking useful yeah every, everyone should love it yeah and you so you obscure all the ways that the that the post office helps you uh, so that you can say stuff like well we've got fedex and ups let the free market do it ignoring the fact that both of those companies rely very heavily on the infrastructure of the of the postal service to do the highly profitable things that they, that and they also, do. And also that these effet elites, liberals living in big cities are going to be least impacted by the dissolution of USPS. Yeah. It is the fucking heartland. It is Trump country. It is rural areas of smaller towns, places in the South that are going to be hardest hit by the loss of the USPS because prices on shipping are going to skyrocket. Spike. 
They are going to be so much more expensive for people living in rural areas, you know, especially because those people being far from cities rely on things being shipped to them to a much greater extent than people who live in like large urban areas. I mean, it's so it's just one more fucking example in a incredibly long list of examples of people voting against their own interests. And that is a real failure of the left is that we have and I mean, like, I'm not saying that to like, you know, flagellate ourselves like, oh, we should have done better. But we have to like ask, like, how did we lose that fight? Because it seems so straightforward. Like, how did we lose that kind of battleground of ideas? How did we lose that argument? That, like, this is in your interest to well, keep something like the Postal Service. And I, well, I think Chris is right in that, like, in, 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 that will, uh, that, the, that the right will do something like, oh, no, don't worry. If this impacts you in a bad way, it's your, sac- it's your personal sacrifice right, yeah. for this greater cause of owning the libs. Yeah, right? like, and like, okay, now it's more expensive for me. But gosh, you know, before I was giving all this money to the Postal Service that George Soros was using to mail fake ballots to immigrants, right? You know, like, <laughs> who are going to take away my guns? Yeah, who are eventually going to take away my guns, right? And so, like, that's a way that you can make people sacrifice is to say that it's for a greater good that, that, they've, that they have also been propagandized about right but we don't we don't make those connections uh as well as they do like we came up with the idea of intersectionality on the left but the right understands it and deploys it way better than we ever in terms of cultural grievance and in terms of everything, like a, a, a wide mapping with the Charlie when the board and the string, you right? Know, yeah, tying well, every cultural grievance in, together into yeah. like a big, like a big hurricane of symbolic uh, reasons why we need to, you know, privatize USPS. Yeah, it's, it's it really is that that Charlie episode where he's like, "Let's talk about the post office." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that is the actual, uh, you know, quote about it. Yeah. So I guess to like stay on this topic, but also branch out a little bit, Chris made me watch the Axi- the full Trump Axios interview. <laughs> and I was so excited because I've been wanting to watch it, but we needed uh, to go through it together. We needed an excuse. No, so I, I, I needed to really like need the little extra oomph to get over the, the hump to make Britney watch it. Look, here's me. the thing. I have for the past, even well, in even into the election the 2016 it, election. The 2016 election made it a general policy of mine to never listen to more than like two or three minutes of Trump speak. It's a lot. Because it's a lot. It's infuriating. It makes me really angry. I, I get very confused as to how anybody can ever listen to him and think that he's anything except like the dumbest person to ever be put on national television like honey boo boo is smarter than donald trump like he just literally every fucking word out of his mouth is incomprehensible nonsense that's totally disconnected to anything else that's like it's decontextualized just fucking anyway my point being we are making ourselves dinner in the kitchen watching this trump axios interview and i'm just screaming at the television (laughs) like poor david is looking at me wide-eyed like uh maybe worried that i'm gonna throw something and i'm not like you i don't really get angry about very many things so um no but that that was one of them so so we have a new television (laughs) (laughs) no no i did not get violent although damaging property isn't violence i was about to i was about to correct you thank you yeah i'm actually surprised you didn't go on your uh the tragedy of the commons is a myth rant when chris uttered those uh those three words yeah yeah, four words um more on that later yeah yeah uh that's one of david's little pet peeves is the idea of the tragedy of the commons i have a reading list about it he does he literally does um 
Basically, it's more about privatization than the fact that anybody misused the commons, actually. So, Google enclosure acts. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we watched this fucking Axios interview, and it was, it's just, I'm dumber now, having watched oh, it. Yeah. But, you know, the the reporter was, like, really, or, or uh, J- Jason... News presenter man. Yeah, whatever his name I is. Care. I don't even remember. Meme. Like, he's, yeah. he's a meme guy now. He, the guy. He's a character in um, the meme universe of, of the internet. <laughs> he was very similar to, you know, British radio talk show host guy in like not letting him get away with anything and yet still managing to keep him on the hook somehow, which is always interesting. Because Trump, it wouldn't be the first time that Trump just said this interview's over and walked away. Yeah. He did his best to move on from things that Trump wanted to keep talking about. Like, he did a great job. Like he was trying to Maybe like, it was right, edited right, right. such that like it was, you know maybe it looked smoother than it actually went because yeah. of how it was edited but it was he was impressively good at getting trump to just because trump is a, like a dog with a bone on a lot of these things yeah. like you can't get him to talk about something else if he doesn't want to we really need to like import a bunch of british journalists into the united states and no, don't get me wrong like the guardian sucks ass like there's a bunch of really terrible things about uh british uh journalism but The one thing that at least they have, even the dumbest, worst, like, tabloid journalist in the UK will at least make an interviewee, like, stay on a fucking topic. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, like, in the United States, you have Chuck Dodd being like, what's your favorite dessert? You know, just like, they don't, like, they're just like, they they won't interrogate anyone. Right. Yeah. uh, But yeah, this, um, this one was like. Just at least he would ask a couple times, like, "What are you t- like? What are you talking about?" Right? Man- or- manuals? What manuals? Yeah, like, like what? Manuals? Yeah, what books? Yeah, and then Trump's books? like, you know, contrary to what people say, I read a lot. Do you read your written brief? I do. do I read you? a lot. Really? You know, I read a lot. They like to say I don't read. I read a lot. Uh, you read your I, daily I comprehend extraordinarily well, uh, probably better than anybody that you've interviewed in a long time. Which is just like. And there's a couple yeah, times where he's laughing read. at him. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a couple times where like, he's laughing at the president of the United States, and that is cool. So Chris's idea was for us to just kind of, like, skip through maybe parts of the video, and um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think yeah, about that? No, I, yeah, I that... think we should just, like, we have a giant wheel over here, and we're, <laughs> it has timestamps on it. We're right. just going to spin it. Spin that wheel. <laughs> oh, no God. whammies, no whammies. Uh, That was pretty good. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> like, I wasn't looking at you right, when you started yeah, doing yeah, it, and I was too. like, did he just pull out a little spinner? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's see here. <laughs> Sleeping on us with a soundboard? Also, kind of cool of HBO to make this interview free, free yeah, on YouTube. On, on YouTube um, as a public service. Well, also as like a, yes, I will subscribe to HBO Max <laughs> if, you, yeah, if right. you give me more of this whack shit. And... Again, I bring who, it up. Who the says ban, the ban banning China from coming in? But it was already it was already in here. By the it? time it was already here, like by the time you banned China, it, it came was in there, through. Europe. Nobody knew the extent. Nobody knew how contagious I'm not, it I'm was. Not, but the question is, Mr. President, China by June, we knew things were bad. And you know, the last time I was with you was the the day before your Tulsa rally in the Oval. So one of the things that's so like obvious in this interview to me is that I, my heart goes out to the interviewer because he's trying to figure out exactly how much to handicap Donald Trump, the president of the United States in this interview. Like he is, it's clearly difficult for him to engage in a, a conversation with this man. Mm-hmm. And he's at one hand being like, okay, there's obviously like 
something seriously wrong with this dude's brain. I'm just going to like sort of roll with it. And it's like, it's like trying to interview baby Huey, you know, it is like talking to a toddler and trying to get them to like stay on task in many ways. Yeah. And I know that's not like a particularly unique insight, but it's and he, just still really bizarre to watch even after five fucking years of listening to this clown. Yeah. And he's like trying to not just straight up make the obvious attacks on this guy's intelligence that the conversation warrants, but rather like, still trying to understand like the very basic if there is at all a you know underlying argument that trump's trying to make and like he's like giving him a lot of credit and like in times where he's just like okay yeah sure like i'm not i, I believe you whatever but like you know he's like painfully trying to get to so the- speaking of i want to actually just continue playing the audio yeah. for another couple seconds because uh i think what he says next is very uh uh emblematic of that so i'm actually just gonna back it up a tiny bit Things were bad. And, you know, the last time I was with you was the the day before your Tulsa rally in the Oval. And, you know, you were saying big, huge crowd. It was indoors. By the way, these people, they listen to you. Excuse me, Jennifer. Yeah. We had a 19,000-seat stadium. First of all, we had 12,000 people, not 6,000, which you reported and other people reported. But you couldn't even get in. It was like an armed camp. Why would you have wanted that? Because 120 Black Lives Matter people I understand, but why would you have wanted and a huge Tulsa, crowd? Excuse me, wait. And Tulsa... And he does that well, all... Excuse me, wait. Because that area was a very good area at the time. It was a, it's very an good. area that was... Very, it was, an, it was a good area. It was a very good area. After. And, like, he, so he's trying to talk to him. Like, let's follow the thread here for a second, just to see what a fucking saint this guy is. He's trying to talk to him, tell, tell, remind Trump of a conversation that they had prior to his Tulsa rally. And all Trump can... He can't even follow the... All he can do is say, it was actually 12,000, not 6,000, and you reported that. Um, Which he probably didn't even report that, because, like, that's not... It's just, like, so fucking incredible that he can't even... How do you conduct that interview when you can't even finish a thought without him going off on some bizarre tangent? Yeah. Well, like, not to give Trump too much credit, but, like, part of that... What he does is uh, say so many wrong things that in order to continue an interview like that... You have to allow him to say the wrong things. Well, you you have to, like, at least accept, like, the least wrong thing. Yeah, pick your battles. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to pick one and then, like, just have a conversation based on, okay, there were 12,000 people. And so, you know, like, he's really smart because you can go, okay, yeah, why... Should there be twelve thousand people? Why do you want a big crowd? Yeah, yeah in a in a you know like in the middle of a pandemic, right? And like that that in you know and they said, well, it's a very good area. And I was like, that's not that doesn't make any fucking sense. And then and they're like, I'm surprised you didn't bring up the fact that fucking uh uh kane died (laughs) yeah yeah like like someone died of corona like a famous person died it it may have happened like immediately after this maybe yeah Yeah, nobody you know that would have been i think a a mistake from a like rhetorical journalistic perspective because we don't know that herman kane died from the tulsa rally specifically um but but he, he also brings up a very interesting point where he's like pleading with the president and he's saying you yourself have said explicitly that you're the only person that these people who hang on your every word can trust. And you knew in June how bad this pandemic was. And you insisted on putting that many people into that room and telling them they're all going to be fine. You know, like... They trust you. Don't you have some responsibility? Yeah. In fact, let me see if I can't find that. It was the highest rating in the history of Fox television... Saturday. Oh, you know what? Yeah, let's actually it do that. It was the highest rating. Mr. President. My speech, well, wait a minute, you're, you're saying something. Yeah. 
That speech was the highest rated speech in the history of Fox television on Saturday night. And nobody says I think, that. I think you misunderstand me. I'm criticizing your ability to draw a crowd. Are well, you kidding me? I'm I've covered you for this. five years. You draw massive I'm crowds, you get this. huge ratings. I'm asking about At the public the time, health. And I canceled another one. I had to cancel it. Right. We're going to have a great crowd in New Hampshire, and I canceled it for the same reason. But here's the question. It, you know, I've covered you for a long time. I've, I've gone to your rallies. I've talked to your people. They love you. They listen to you. They listen to every word you say. They hang on your every word. They don't listen to me or the media or Fauci. They think we're fake news. They want to get their advice from you. And so when they hear you say everything's under control, don't worry about wearing masks, I mean, these are people, many of them are older people, well, Mr. President. And, you know, that's another smart yeah. thing that he does is he flatters Trump. He says, no, you can draw a crowd and they love you and they, and they, and, and we're fake news. And, you know, like he, like that's, I think that's one of the reasons he's able to, I mentioned earlier, how do you keep him on the hook, right? Is that he does those little things where he flatters Trump in a way that like you and I don't think is flattering, but for Trump, it's absolutely flattering. Like, yeah. yes, I draw a crowd. Everybody loves me. Yeah. Um, it's very deftly done, I think. It's just, it, but it all seems either completely lost on Trump, like legitimately lost, like he can't actually process what's going on, or he's like so many levels deep into his character, like portrayal of the character that he's been, you know, cultivating for like the last, you know, several years and as candidate and now president of the United States. That's like this person who is just seemingly like out to fucking lunch. And it seems legit to me, but there's always this thing in the back of my mind that's like, how can he be so out to lunch and yet so effective? Like, is there some Machiavellian evil like behind you know the uh, that is the question right and i don't think we'll ever know yeah it's like we can only speculate if this is like idiocy that happens to stumble upwards into success or like a brilliant conniving mastermind who just plays the buffoon really well it reminds me of george w bush where he he looks at the camera and with a wink says my secret they misunderestimate me yeah it's like yeah, like, you know, like, who the fuck knows? Who knows? And, you know, like George W. Bush, like, like uh, the inheritor of a political dynasty that it has incredible power in tie in with the global oil oligarchs of the world and the Christian uh, eschatologists of the world. And like, <laughs> seriously, the, listen to that bonus episode. <laughs> like, in, in, the, in the, the, the deep state. And, you know, he was like a CIA head, like George H.W. Bush, like basically like was like, what, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest shadow operators of like what, what has happened in, in American and uh, American empire, like history out of anybody. And uh, his son just like played the dumb card so thoroughly yeah. and so well, but he never lost the trust of all of the you know, the ruling class and oligarchs around him, which he allowed and, you know, like, took a lot of flack, like, uh, it was the the caricature to be made fun of, so that all these other people who are, like, running the world can all keep the, the, the wheels greased and, you know, the money flowing and everything else. And I don't know, it's just like, it, looking back at it, it's like, he was he was crazy like a fox you know what crazy i mean like a fox yeah and maybe trump is too i mean but like trump also seems like he's like sundowning like i you know, hope, like, I I don't hope really he know. donates his brain to science when he goes because <laughs> yeah. it really we might be able to learn a lot they just like open up his skull and they like find bobby bush like literally inside his skull and they're just like, <laughs> and it's just like e-entertainment news is just like <laughs> coming out of his brain yeah, yeah no, i i uh don't 
think I don't think he's a mas- a master chess player or anything. Really, what it seems to me is that like you have to understand the White House as like a distributed consciousness, and that uh, the president is one part of it. And in this case, Trump just sows chaos, and then every and then the Stephen Millers and and Barr and, and all all these types fight for Dick power Cheney's. yeah yeah but it was specifically in the trump administration i think that what's happening is like people uh fight for power within the white house because trump definitely like believes what the last person in the room says so it's just like a bunch of power players trying to be the last person in the room and then some terrible shit happens i do also think he plays dumber than he is though sure yeah i mean we'll be i i, I think he trump's brain and the attention economy have been sh- mutually shaped that like i i that yeah because he's been in reality tv for so long yep, on I the apprentice that. that like he's formed i think a lot of what the attention economy is like like what he does I- I- in the apprentice like created models for other reality tv shows which then get filtered down into all sorts of other uh attention competitions well and they're also both just like tv and otherwise they're also both mutually shaped by the same forces that are creating value out of the valueless yeah which is what trump's real estate empire has been his entire adult life is like turning worthless things into things of value through branding it's the same thing that reality television has done Mm. since you know the earliest days of real world road rules Mm. which is taking a bunch of absolutely trash uh video and and it like and weaving a narrative out of it that's manipulated and you know taken out of context and twisted into something it, like kind of grotesque and, and almost like not when I was teaching a um, undergrad class on reality television during the 2016 election and it was very surreal because so much of the teaching materials and the theory around that topic were directly applicable to the Trump campaign and his branding and his followers. And I think you're right. I think it's actually not even so much that he came out of reality television. That's true. But it's also that he came out of the same forces that made reality television and the larger attention economy and this larger neoliberal financial world that we've made where like money just comes from nowhere Mm. and goes into nowhere and multiplies and like, I don't know. I, 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 I'm having a hard time articulating exactly what it is, but I feel like those things are, are like directly related to each other. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think like Trump is sundowning most definitely. And so it's like his stage four syphilitic brain, like the last neurons that will fire are the ones that like he knows how to raise a crowd and create that, do that Midas touch where a piece of trash becomes gold because he put his name on it. Like yeah. that, that is like the, I think the very last thing he will be able to do. <laughs> because he does it is sort of a knee jerk reaction. Like it's he, muscle it's, memory. It's for muscle him. memory. Yeah, yeah, I agree yeah. with that too. I so think. It, yeah. So I, 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 I think that we are because he didn't always talk like this, right? Yeah. You know, he's he, he, he's spoken full sentences not a decade ago, a couple of decades ago. Yeah, in the eighties, if you listen to yeah. him talk in the eighties and nineties, like he sounds almost like a normal person. Yeah. A lot of this is born of his work in re- in reality television and branding, yeah. where he knows how he, he speaks in. In sound bites, like he and knows now it's exactly almost like he can't it. speak any other way. Yeah, yeah. which he probably can't. And and to be honest, like he's in his most uh, coherent moments, he's like 
way more there than Joe Biden, you know? Like, I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, like the, the, it goes on, uh, the, the interview, it, it talks about the Russian bounties. Um, different subject. It's been widely reported that the US has intelligence indicating that Russia paid bounties or offered to pay bounties to Taliban fighters to kill American right. soldiers. Mm-hmm. You had a phone call with Vladimir Putin on July 23rd. Did you bring up this issue? No, that was a phone call to discuss other things. And frankly, uh, that's an issue that... Uh, many people said was uh, fake news. Who said it was, it was fake false, news? I think a lot of people. Uh, if you look <laughs> a at lot some of, people. of the wonderful folks from the Bush administration, uh, some of them, not any friends of mine, <laughs> were saying that it's a fake issue. But a lot of people said it's a fake issue. There was a dispute well, we had a call, the intelligence. We had a call talking about nuclear proliferation, which right. is a very big subject, where they would like to do something, and so would I. We discussed numerous things. We did not discuss that. No. And you've never discussed it with him? I have never discussed it with him. No. Rega- I would. I'd have no problem with it. But you don't believe but, you know, the intelligence. It it's because you don't believe the intelligence. That's why. Uh, everything, you know, it's interesting. Nobody ever brings up China. They always bring Russia, Russia, Russia. If we can do something with Russia in terms of nuclear proliferation, which is right. a very big problem. Bigger than global bigger warming. Bigger problem than global warming. Right. A much bigger problem much bigger than global problem. warming in terms of the real world. Uh, in terms of the that real just... world. That's such an interesting thing he does there, too, yep. with that uh, much bigger problem in terms of the real world. Yeah. Very deftly done. Like, yeah. And I don't know. That's that's That doesn't sound like something that a dummy says to me. And he, maybe he's been fed that. Maybe that's maybe that's been trained into him by one of his handlers or something. But that's that's smart to do that. He's narrative creating with literally every moment he's speaking. And yeah. I feel like he's very consciously aware of this. Like it's, it it's it's artful, it's deftful, as you as you had uh, said. You know, like he's constantly creating or projecting rather his own. Like we all talked about, there's like 350 million realities in America, all living in our own heads. But he singularly has more capability, in my opinion, than any other American of projecting his reality into other people's psychic spaces. Yeah. And he does it like... Which I think is part of why I can't listen to him because it feels like my brain is screaming inside of itself, like reject, like it's a bad organ transplant or something that like my brain is just like... And, you know, it's weird because, like, I've always been into right-wing stuff. I've always, like, not, okay, not, I mean, <laughs> um, I've always taken an interest in, like, right-wing ideology. Yeah, I've always found intriguing. it fascinating. Yeah. And I was fascinated by Trump when he was running for president. But now that he's president, there's just, I don't know, my, my brain just, like, can't, I can't be exposed to it. Right, so like as I hear Trump talk, you can almost see the slot machine barrels like clicking into place, where where he he's just like following some sort of tree diagram of like, different sorts of propaganda. That if this, then that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, well, you know, climate change is in, and then it was like, okay, click climate change. Uh, you know, in the, in in terms of the real world, like, okay, yeah, c- connect climate change to not real. You know, and then yeah, and then just like go on and on and on, and, on, and then like. Uh, uh, things that boomers care about nuclear proliferation right and so like you as we were just talking about at the beginning of this episode right or like that um we should the real thing to care about is the thing that older people care about is the nuclear proliferation and like so that way you could say like oh like we're not even done caring about nuclear nukes we can talk about so we don't even need to talk about climate change because we you know just one nuclear conflagration and you know like every, all those points are moot right right so yeah it, it, you can just I, I think just again it's just like him 
it will be the last thing dying in his brain is how to string together a uh, ready for television like narrative yeah it's also interesting how he will simultaneously use like george w bush administration uh people now my friends for authorities on a topic like Uh he's like well what do you mean lots of people are saying like who he's like some very fine people from the bush administration not my friends not not my friends and it's important (laughs) and it's very smart that he this is again where he's not just like a clown like a buffoon that's very smart to say like no these aren't even these are my people these are and they're people who don't like me (laughs) yeah well what's more important is not that he hates them right because he can call them amazing people very smart people but they don't like him yeah and so the fact that they don't like him they're inviting they're fucking inviting them to the dnc uh rally uh um convention oh my god that is that is one of the most troubling trends in 2016 and 27 or since 2016 (sighs) is the rehabilitation of all the old ghouls that have gotten us in the forever wars for like very obvious private profit and like the dems are just so much more readily embracing republicans than they are like even just the the most mildly progressive flank of their own party yep so i was talking about how you know he he's often more cogent um than uh biden is right now and one of the things is when he's basically like calling out the brave uh mujahideen fighters of (laughs) uh of afghanistan you know he's like the russians they they got messed up in afghanistan they don't want anything to do with afghanistan like why would they be paying bounties Hey, Russia doesn't want anything to do with Afghanistan. Let me just tell you about Russia. Russia used to be a thing called the Soviet Union. Because of Afghanistan, they went bankrupt. They became Russia, just so you do understand, okay? The last thing that Russia wants to do is get too much involved with Afghanistan. The reason I say this is, is even if you don't believe the, this particular piece of intelligence, and there is dispute, no doubt, there is dispute in the intelligence community about it, your former uh, John Nicholson, former head of forces in Afghanistan, said, and this is when he was working for you, that Russia is supplying weapons to the Taliban. Isn't that enough to challenge Putin over the killings of well, US we soldiers? Well, we supplied weapons when they were fighting Russia, too. You know, when we were when they were fighting with the Taliban when yeah, in that, Afghanistan. It's a different era. Well, it's a diff- I'm just saying, yes. But, but does that, we, how no, does no, that I'm affect... I'm just saying we did that, too. But how does that... I don't a- know. I didn't ask Nicholson about that. He was there for a long time, didn't have great success because, you know, he was there before me, and then ultimately I made a change. But you surely heard that, right? I mean, it's well known in the intelligence community um, that they're arming the Taliban, Russia. Uh, I don't know. When you say arming... Is supplying weapons. Or they- <laughs> Russia is supplying weapons and money to the Taliban. I have heard that, but it's never, re- again, it's never reached my desk. I mean, this is a weird thing that he does where he's like, I've heard, I've heard that, but it's never reached my desk. So does that mean that somebody, unless somebody fucking puts a post-it note, like on his little, you know, I imagine he has one of those little calendars that's like, got like, you know. It's got the hanging um, there, cat. Like when the McRib is coming back, <laughs> like he's got that marked down. Um, you know, whenever uh, Sean Tucker Carlson. Yeah, 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 right. Um, it's a, it's like, so does that mean somebody has to put like a sticky note on his desk that's like Russia's arming the Taliban because if he's heard of it, but it never reached his desk. What are the implications of that? That like, I can know something in an unofficial capacity, but unless I know it in an official capacity, then it doesn't. I mean, there's something very interesting happening there, right? Yeah. I mean, I think primarily the technique is being utilized to create a field of official action that he's responsible for uh, being prescribed him by, you know, these sort of, staff or whatever so that but he's also constantly saying like but i've got my finger on the pulse of everything i'm doing i'm doing the stuff that some people don't even think i should be doing i'm, I'm reaching out and you know i'm i'm, I'm banning tiktok you know 
just because oh, I, I, I thought, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, but it's whenever he doesn't want something, he can be like, oh, well, you know, they didn't put, they didn't assign it to me. I do, I do the work that's assigned to me. What, right. what, yeah. what do you want from me? It didn't come to my desk. You know, like official, the officials, they don't think I should be dealing with it. It's a non-issue. It's fake news. Yeah. Well, it's also a way to say, like, I'm just like you, right? Like, of course I heard it. You heard it, too. Everyone's heard it. Like, I, we've all heard it together. But, like, in terms of, yeah, my official capacity, didn't reach my desk. Yeah. And, like, you can see the interviewer tries to say, like, we know that the Russia, the, the Russian um, bounties w- made it into your daily briefing. And you just said you read it. But, like, it, again, it happens that it's eclipsed yeah. because Trump is a fucking train. He's a freight train yeah. that can't be interrupted. Forward. <laughs> yeah. So, like, he tries to even, like, edge it in there. But it's just, it gets mired. It gets yeah. lost in the, you know, the chaos of his free association speaking style. Well, he also, he also gets in there a, a nice shout out for India, right? Because it, Modi right. in India, mm-hmm. are, are, you know, they, they're, they have a very close relationship because they're both fucking fascists. Yeah. And, and so you can also throw in there like, oh, you know, what's more important is like China being like mean to India. Uh, at least two or three times a week intelligence. Because this was apparently talking about India, right. talking about right. with the problems with China, talking about so many different elements of the world. Mm-hmm. The world is a very uh, angry place. If you look all over the world, we call up, I get, uh, I see 22 soldiers were killed in India with China fighting over the border. It's been raging for many, many decades and they've been fighting and back and forth. I, I have so many briefings on so many different countries, but this one didn't reach my desk. Right. And, like, and you're just like, I'll throw that in there because, you know, like some half remembered uh, meeting, you know, the, the, you know, throw that in there, too. It looks like I know of, a new thing yeah. that, you know, maybe not the, everybody not, is familiar yeah, with. Not even you, you smart British Axios guy. You didn't even ask me about that. I, look at how many things I have to deal with. And yeah. I can imagine, like, someone who is sympathetic to Trump saying, like, look at all these other, th- like, more substantive things that he has to deal with. The liberal with. fake news wants yeah. him to focus on these things that aren't real. Meanwhile, he's concerned about real things like the India-Chinese border. Right. In the same way that we would be like, oh, God, they're talking about Benghazi again, right? Like they're, Exa- It's, yeah. the, exact, it's, it's the, exact the exactly the same. And yeah. that's something that a lot of libs can't get, is that like, it? no, it's the same fucking thing. It's the, it's Russiagate. It's the same fucking process. Which they to- totally made for themselves. they're both equally wrong. Yeah, it, well, it's, and it's a bet that they made for themselves, right? It was like these all, that's what they tried to impeach him on that's what they are trying to get like all that they talked about for years was was russia and so now like even if there is some sort of like legitimate malfeasance like it's tainted like now no one can take that shit seriously yeah and he's uh, president will also use um american historical facts that have fallen out of popularity in terms of being something that we should have done in his defense of um himself and I, that almost never happens with any other president or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like owning the mantle. He's like, oh yeah, America, we were a fucked up empire. We, we, we were paying, we were paying the Taliban before the Russians were paying the Taliban. What? It's bad when the Russians do it, but it's good when we do it. It's like, whoa, dude. Like you are, which is taken straight out of the left wing, like what aboutism that yeah. that libs get so pissed off at us all the time for yeah. saying, you know, well, Russia, we've been we've been fucking with Russia's elections since you know since they were the USSR, yeah. and and libs will get all pissed off at you for that and say like, well, you know, that's a different era, as the as uh, the Axios guy says, that was a different era, and like yes, 
And like the two aren't directly related, you know, this concern over Russian bounties versus and funding the Taliban versus. But I don't know. It's very horseshoey. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't like it so much, but it is it is fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very like game recognized game moment because that's very Trump. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah. no, this is a game. This is a game show. And somebody wins it's, and somebody loses. Yeah. So like if, you know, if, if, if I, uh, you know, it's, it's the exact same thing that you hear, like when they're tr- deciding who to vote off the island, right? It's just like, well, I don't know, two weeks ago, you know, like they made this decision based on, you know, like how well they did in the final challenge. And like, so I can also decide to vote them off because of how they did in the final challenge, even though that they're the strongest player. You know, you can do that. Like, yeah. it's, it, it is ripped it's right out yeah. of, uh, of, a, of a reality TV show. And not to get too, too off topic real quick, but did you guys see the uh, 3D animated uh, Modi anti-G uh, propaganda? Yes. Where yeah. Modi and G are like DBZ characters, yeah. but like in 3D, and they're like having this kung fu battle like on mountaintops and like basically Modi fucking owns G and then multiplies himself into three versions of himself and he basically like the first one he's laughing with Putin the second one he uh is laughing with Trump yeah who gives a thumbs up gives Double a thumbs, thumbs up. up and then uh Shinzo Abe hip bumps him and they're all on clouds as if they've already like died Asc- yeah ascended. Asc- ascended yeah yeah and they, they're looking down on president G. Right, we're gonna drop yeah. that in the, in the show uh notes just because it's it's a lovely little animation it's wild it's wild it's uh-huh. and there's there's like three of them and they're all like what's really impressive about those is that they all because india has like a hundred recognized languages like all of them are understandable with no no language whatsoever right? oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's brilliant it's really well done it's it's horrifying <laughs> that, they're, that they're that good yeah. at it so uh right, get, so get ready for uh trump uh dbz edition um in the in the final chapters of this uh election campaign yeah so there's a ton of other shit in this interview. He talks about Black Lives Matter and how he got off on the wrong foot with them because they said pigs in a blanket fry them up like bacon, which is just objectively kind of funny, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he talks about like the anarchists in Portland. And if you touch our federal courthouses, you're in jail for 10 years, blah, blah, blah. But we would be a bit remiss if we didn't mention what he has to say about Ghislaine Maxwell. Wild. Mr. President, the other day a reporter asked you about Ghislaine Maxwell. You said, quote, I just wish her well, frankly. I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach, but I wish her well, whatever it is. Mr. President, Ghislaine Maxwell has been arrested on allegations of child sex trafficking. Why would you wish such a person well? Her friend or boyfriend, Epstein, was either killed or committed suicide in jail. We don't know. She's now in jail. We don't know. Uh-huh. What? Yeah, I wish You're still well. trying I'd to figure it out. Well. I'd wish a lot of people well. I wish a I lot, wish of, a lot of, of people well. Let them prove somebody was guilty. See, if I were in the interview... Oh, so you're saying you hope she doesn't die in jail. Is that what you mean by wish her well? Her boyfriend died in jail. I love they called Jeffrey Epstein her boyfriend. How happened? Was it suicide? Was he killed? Who knows? And I do wish her well. I'm not looking for anything bad for her. I'm not looking bad for anybody. And they took that and I mean, she's a child. Alleged child sex trafficking. But all it is is her boyfriend died. <laughs> he died in jail. Was he killed? Was it suicide? I do. I wish her well. Jesus. Fucking incredible. Um, let's move to Portland. <laughs> let's just God. move away from that immediately. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah, he's like, and he does an interesting thing where he says, like, I'm not wishing bad things for anybody. Which is completely, but, like, obviously tr- not true. <laughs> well, it is depending on how you define anybody. Yeah. 
like it, it, it really get drills down into who he dehumanizes. Sure. They're animals. They're not sending their best. You know, rapists. like yeah, like who? So it's 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 interesting. Um, and the the fact that the interviewer is just like she's arrested for child, you know, child sex trafficking, and he's just like, look, her boyfriend died in jail. He died. And we don't know. Did he kill himself? No, she's killed? in jail. I wish her well. I hope she doesn't die. See, if I, if I mean, like it's very simplistic, but it's like, what's the wrong thing there? Like, what's okay? Like, it, frankly. Like, yeah, I don't really want particularly anybody to die, even, like, terrible people. I don't really, like, wish death on anybody. That's just kind of a ethos yeah, of yeah. mine. Um, it, I don't know. I don't know. It's, 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 it's fucking I, weird. If, if I was the reporter right there, I would be asking, so, Charles Manson, do you wish him well? <laughs> Ted Kaczynski. And you know him? what Trump would say? Yeah. Sure. 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 Yeah, sure. but I, I, I want that. It. I want that on record. Well, that he, yeah, like, I know. He right, wants yeah. Ted Kaczynski to be okay. I find it really okay. odd that he, 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 so Trump drops that he has met you know, Ghislaine many times. Um, the interviewer doesn't talk about the fact that he knew Jeffrey Epstein, her boyfriend. Well, it's he, literally, it's only, it's like a minute I know, that like, they talk about it. The it's fact, like almost exactly. The fact that they were like lifetime adult friends during the entire period of time when Jeffrey Epstein was trafficking children for sex to his friends is not touched at all by this axios. How, well, but like, how do you? You just say, are, how well, do you? Be like, you've, you you were friends with Jeffrey Epstein. Well, for all you know, there was an agreement in the beginning that said you bring up oh, Trump's ties uh, with Epstein okay, and the fair. interview's over. Like, I wouldn't be at all surprised because in these types of interviews, there's almost always a list of off limits. Yeah. Almost always. P tape. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know like stuff yeah, like that yeah, yeah. like yeah. i imagine that they agree on topics that just don't get discussed and so i wouldn't be surprised if there's some conversation before this interview between trump's handler and you know hbo that says like can we bring up Ghislaine maxwell as long as you don't bring up any alleged yeah. ties between epstein and the president yeah you can't bring up the time that he was famously photographed with like several teenagers on each arm you know right um, um and I, you know obviously that's speculation we have no way of knowing if that's actually the case but i would not be at all surprised if that is you know and also he touched he touches on like 30 different topics yeah, with fair. him in this 38 minute interview yeah, so it's, it's just, like it's, it's wild and the fact that he as the president from the bully pulpit of this interview is basically like throwing doubt on the suicide narrative which like the entire mainstream press kept like towed that line yeah like it was never acceptable in any of the um uh official discussion about this that it could have even been uh, a a murder like it was like an open and shut case about how it was a suicide how they're you know the 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 high what was a hyboid bone or whatever the yeah whatever that bone is in the neck yeah yeah and that like it was just oh it was just a freak accident the the, the cameras weren't working it was definitely a suicide, though. Trust yep. us. And the president being like, maybe it wasn't. Who knows? You know, I, I we wish her know. well. People are looking into it. We don't know. Her boyfriend died. Very yeah. sad. Anyway. All, All right. right. So that, that's that's the Trump Axios interview. Yeah. Hopefully you guys found this as uh, <laughs> simultaneously horrifying and enjoyable If as we you're did. still listening, bless your heart. We love you. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Wildflower? Let's. Fuck Yeah. It sure is a scorcher out there. It D is. <laughs> Hot as balls. I swear uh, it's getting hotter and hotter every year. Weird. Yeah. For folks that live in other more civilized parts of the country, most people in our region do not have air conditioning. 
Like it's mm-hmm. fairly rare for, especially if you live in an older building, to have air conditioning. Like we have one a uh, window unit in our bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Because I cannot sleep hot. Yeah. I, it must be cool while I sleep. The rest of the time, I can fucking tolerate it. But but Ironweeds HQ. Air conditioning. Air conditioning. The only reason I continue to do this podcast <laughs> is because for for one blissful afternoon every week I get to bask in the air conditioning. But uh some some a bright spot in our future of air conditioning, uh, and this was sent to us by friend um Nathan Ferguson. Thank you, Nathan. Solving the global cooling problem as air conditioning sucks up more and more energy, Singapore finds a greener way to keep cool. So basically, Singapore has been dealing with this issue for years, and they have, like, Singapore has, like, a thing with air conditioning, too. I don't really understand all the ins and outs, but I know that, like, they have kind of, like, a... Like, it's hot there. It's, so well, it's hot really there. they're really into air conditioning. But no, but there's tropical. also... It's not the heat. It's, it's the, the humidity. humidity. No, nice, by the fact nice. that, um, like, it's become such a symbol uh, uh, across Asia that you've entered the middle class if you have an air conditioner. Right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. which, I mean, we, I mean, it was true here also like it's a uh it's a big status symbol to be able to control uh the condition of your air yeah, yeah. And, and they they point out that um singapore has a uh particularly difficult time um getting toward the uh renewable energy um independence that it seeks uh, because it doesn't have the terrain to do hydropower mm. and it uh ha- can deal with uh solar but pretty much only rooftop solar because yeah, it's, it's very, so it's, densely populated it's a land starved country I mean, it's like it is really the only existing city state in the world oh, right interesting. right it's it's a it's only one city like at the, at the tip of yeah it's like the vatican yeah yeah it's, and it's at the very tip of of, of, a, of a peninsula and so it doesn't have any land to do this sort of land intensive uh renewable energy like wind or farm solar so they have so right now something like 96 percent high 90 90s uh, of all of their electricity comes from natural gas mm. so they're they're turning as much as they can to high efficient use of that electricity right yeah. and so yeah and they're, they're also uh they have this um they're working out this partnership with a company in australia to run a uh submarine um line from <laughs> from singapore to uh, australia the tip of darwin australia uh where they have a large solar farm so they they're they're gonna go, they would go that far for oh, to get a direct like electric hook yeah. up to Australia. Yeah. Well, I mean, we already run like tons of cables yeah. under the ocean, so no, it's it. completely technically technically feasible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're yeah, but cool. that but that's like the extent to which they they would go for that sort of electricity. That just made me think about a really cool premise for a movie where basically you have like a Poly Shore uh, starring in it, and it's going to be like Sea Lab, like where they build a underground marijuana grow up and they tie in the giant electricity underwater you know uh the 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 giant electricity utilization by way of just hooking up to the mains coming off of australia (laughs) so that nobody Uh really notices uh like the gigawatts of electricity that they're gonna and no one will be able to see see the heat signatures because it'll be so far under the ocean right and then they'll traffic all of the weed in submarines i'm trying to think of what the uh trouble in a bubble equivalent (laughs) is to like to like deep see uh marijuana farming yeah, it's just yeah. basically like biodome meets like sea lab 2020 <laughs> or, uh... um so yeah so uh, kind of one of the ways that they're making this so efficient is almost with like a geothermal model of like pipes running deep underground that uh cool water more efficiently than yep 
um, a standard, you know, HVAC system. Yeah, so, so. The, the article describes, like, pipes going five stories underground. So, if you're each story is, like, 12 feet, usually, is how we talk about it, right? So, like, a couple hundred feet down in the ground, or no, no I guess not a couple hundred. <laughs> 60 couple dozen yeah yeah a couple dozen feet in the ground um which usually i don't think is deep enough like around here but they don't have a frost line the the important point is you get those pipes below the frost line so they don't get pushed up uh seasonally but i mean like so um you know kudos to uh singapore for having just like a a a bang and marketing department uh that bloomberg is really into like oh, yeah. the, the one, invested like the one man like mike bloomberg like <laughs> he constantly <laughs> talks about singapore as like a, as a model because he really likes this uh public private partnership that they do and it's very centralized and like a couple people that are not really democratically elected control it yeah. um he really really likes singapore and the technocracy that they've developed um so uh it's it sounds a, like a beautiful city and it is a beautiful city like uh, you know with great uh yeah well yeah yeah it is a beautiful city it it it, they they sacrifice a lot to get that uh but they um it's a yeah the the system is basically just centralized cooling which if like pretty i would say pretty much all major campuses like college campuses or corporate campuses built at uh probably after world war ii have something like this uh and then like um, i think this is on a much bigger scale maybe yeah yeah it seems it seems like although the, you also have like um St. Paul Minnesota has a uh, centralized steam production that was actually created uh I believe when uh they had a pretty strong socialist uh, oh, contingent in, in the city yeah yeah so it would be a That's centralized cool. heating system which is Im- immeasurably more efficient than each house yeah. building it you know making its own steam so like this the centralization of heating and cooling has been around for a very very long time uh and it makes sense that a place like singapore is starting to like you know do a new spin on that sort of uh technology because it, it just makes sense the only reason that we don't have that now is because the industry is built up where like basically hvac companies get paid by how expensive and large the the hvac system is per building so the 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 the, the companies the the corporate the industry that's built up around heating and cooling uh well, i think it's more it's got to be more that. complicated than that because like how could every house on this block share a cooling system how well, yeah. physically, physically could that possibly work? Could you do it? Well, I mean, you'd have to do something like build a subsection of the sewer system to be like insulated and running coal pipe or or something. I'm trying to think like the closest thing analogous we have is being able to hook up to natural gas supply and uh, electricity grid and water so there'd be like a a glycol line or something that would be you know uh available somewhere under the sidewalk with like a key or something and you'd be able to like tap into it and it'd all be like highly insulated um because like that's how i'm going to be keeping my my fermenters cool is i'm going to have an ethylene glycol chiller and then it's going to have this cool this cold fluid inside of it and then as the beer heats up uh to keep it at the right temperature, there'll be a little individual pump that'll just circulate a little bit of that cooled fluid through the fermenter. So you could have that kind of thing per house with just like a set of valves, a pressurized cooling loop. And I imagine that as far as I could read from this article, that's essentially what they're doing for these many buildings is allowing for them all to pull off of this, uh, this cooling loop. That's like, you know, going to span several blocks. Yeah, the, I just feel like the excavation project oh, yeah. of doing Big that it is it is Im- physically impossible with the older houses in this area. 
It is nearly impossible to retrofit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that's, my, that's the point. It, I'm be very to, expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But well, with, I, I, with no, but Singapore, I don't think structurally the buildings could handle it in this area. Like uh, a lot of the foundations of these buildings, I don't think could handle an excavation project of that. Huh. Of that, I don't know. I mean, maybe, but like half the buildings in Troy are fucking on the brink of being condemned. Like it's just uh, so I don't know. But no, it's a. Um, I mean, like if there was space in the right of way. Uh, you know where, where like national grid puts all of its lines it's possible yeah but it, it would be intensely expensive uh, which is why like this uh, singapore project is doing it all on new construction it's that's not, the, it yeah like. that's yeah. where i was going yeah. with that yeah. so with you that can point. it's yeah. it's very easy to do or at least not any harder than anything else if you do it with like a brand new uh site um and i think there are some there's like a couple of new subdevelopments that a building in the United States that um, they'll do like a ground loop geothermal project where like a dozen houses run on the same heating and cooling exchanger or something yeah. like that. Or like the college that we went to had a centralized heating and cooling tower that connected all the different buildings. And we went to a crappy, like all the buildings are crappy. So, was, you know, it's, like, it's, it's not... Um, it's not rocket surgery, but it's cool that like finally, um, you know, like places like Singapore are starting to recognize the importance of centralizing a lot of stuff that we have decentralized. Yeah. And yeah. I think yeah. that's why we bring this up as the wildflowers, because it's yet another example of that growing, like, you know, focus on like the sustainable future that we want, that we need in the complex technological infrastructure that we now require to be reasonably comfortable all the time, it, we are going to have to start thinking more collectively mm -hmm. all the time. And this is just one more, you know, we often, I think, try to get away from like new construction generally and like not, for example, solve the housing crisis by building new houses, but rather fix up all the houses that already exist. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that that's a nice example of like how, you know, as we, as we build the future we want, we have to think of things as being like collectively owned and maintained and cared for. And, you know, their efficiency goes up by 40% or it yeah. cuts costs. Energy usage is cut by 40% with this type of system. That is Huge. in a world that's being destroyed by global climate change and like the consumption of fossil fuels, it's pretty fucking big. Yep. And in terms of rejecting a lot of that heat to the ground, there's like a lot of ground to reject that heat too. You yeah. Know, like there's so this, the planet I actually was just thinking about this the other day is mostly made up of ground. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> like also most in, of it. in the ocean, you know, like yeah, in the, yeah. there's the, ground under there. Yeah, and even like the, the the heating of the ocean is is a scary thing because there's so much of it. Like yeah, it's, it's absolutely massive. But you know, I've been thinking about um, you know, I'm in basement reno right now and thinking about sort of the the next twenty five to thirty years of um, uh, energy use that my house is going to be having because I'm thinking about like what type of infrastructure do I put in, etc. It doesn't make it much sense to do in a basement because the basement slab is already going to be like 55 degrees like that i'm going to be pouring but if i was to rebuild this house again um you know from scratch or whatever i would put a hydronic heating into the flooring because it is so efficient it's very efficient yeah you can run like a, a very very te small temperature differential and the entire floor becomes like your heating unit and it's quiet you don't need to run fans you don't need to like deal with like anything and so so as a mechanical engineer, I, I'm very uh, pleased that there is effort being put into figuring out how to optimize the basic 
comfort and control systems for homes and buildings. And like, there's, there's a bright future in, in, in renewable energy and, and high efficiency HVAC systems. Yeah. So we cool. love to see it. Yeah. You love to see it. All right. Well, thanks for uh, tuning in this week and for forgiving us for taking last week off. I hope it didn't put you guys out too much. Yeah. I hope everybody that uh, uh, isn't already a Patreon subscriber realized how awesome all the content that is getting unlocked from the Patreon is. And is it's incredible you know, content, folks. Yeah. Considering, uh, you know, giving us as little of it as a dollar. Uh, more and more people are considering it. Patreon, P A T R E O N dot com slash ironweeds. P A T R E, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Did I do it right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and by the way, like, just so you guys know, what that money goes to basically goes to help me spend more time working on the episodes, and like, I'm able to divert some time from other projects to spend more time on this project, and so you know, better quality editing. This episode's going to be pretty time intensive because we are like cutting in a lot of audio so that you guys can hear the context of what we're talking about. I find that that's a very pleasant listening experience for me with other podcasts. I hope that you also enjoy it. And so part of what our Patreon supporters do is basically like pays me, you know, to spend the time doing that stuff. So thank you for that. Uh, so um, uh, I have two things uh, out, two new articles out uh, to read. One is in Protean Magazine, which is about how uh, coronavirus is basically infecting global capitalism. Uh, and it is well attuned to all the ways that we have already killed ourselves and are dying. And like, it's just better at killing us uh, for, you know, very similar uh, reasons. Um, hint, it's capitalism. And then uh, the second one, uh, which just came out, is um, in Eflux Architecture. And it's about how we're going to, uh, how things are quickly moving in the direction of these sort of, like locked down uh, branded communities where um architecture just becomes sort of a cartoon of itself over and over again because it has to reflect a brand and not any sort of actual regional identity hmm. so um lots of really you know like fun up uplifting reading uh by me um i haven't read the eflux one yet but yeah. I, I did read the protean and the the protean is a little daunting but it has a good ending like yeah. it's not a depressing I always try to do that at the end. Yeah, I found, you know, much like this podcast, we try to leave you with something <laughs> with a good taste in your mouth. And I actually do. I, I really like the way the Protean piece ends. I highly recommend people check it out. The Eflux, I can't speak to that. That could be total trash. I have yeah, no it, idea. It, yeah, it's probably probably much trash. <laughs> no, let's not, let's not <laughs> yeah. say that about a publication. Then. Yeah, I'm I, sure it's very good. Yeah. I, I just got to say, as somebody who's not a published writer, um, I really like both of your writing. Oh, thank like, you. A oh, lot. thanks. Like, you know, as, uh, especially um, uh, when it's narrated into an audio uh, podcast. Oh, uh, wow. Those are my favorites. Maybe something yeah. like that will happen in the future. Who knows? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, how long can I tease this project without ever actually saying what it is? Um, so this week's uh, Lennon is going to be essentially a little bit further taste of the failures of the revolutions of 1848 to 51 basically and like you know essentially it's like bourgeois reformism it's the same it's the fucking same shit that we're dealing with today which is a little bit like crazy making because you know this is lenin like written over 100 years ago and like they had a revolution and the fact that we're still fucking going through the same fu- it's a li- it's like so i really hope you guys enjoy it um <laughs> and uh, in the meantime you can follow us on twitter Ironweeds pod. Can you say that a little louder? Ironweeds pod. Can you say it a normal loudness and not either one of those? <laughs> no.
<laughs> okay. You can follow us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. You can shoot us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. Thank you so much. We love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Part two The Revolution Summed Up. Marx sums up his conclusions from the Revolution of 1848 to 51 on the subject of the state we are concerned with in the following argument contained in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte. Quote, but the revolution is through going. It is still journeying through purgatory. It does its work methodically. By December 2nd, 1851, the day of Louis Bonaparte's coup d'etat, it had completed one half of its preparatory work. It is now completing the other half. First, it perfected the parliamentary power in order to be able to overthrow it. Now that it has attained this, it is perfecting the executive power, reducing it to its purest expression, isolating it, setting it up against itself as the sole object in order to concentrate all its forces of destruction against it. And when it has done this second half of its preliminary work, Europe will leap from its seat and exultantly exclaim, Well grubbed, old mole. This executive power with its enormous bureaucratic and military organization, with its vast and ingenious state machinery, with a host of officials numbering half a million besides an army of another half million, this appalling parasitic body, which enmeshes the body of French society and chokes all its pores, sprang up in the days of the absolute monarchy, with the decay of the feudal system which it helped to hasten. The First French Revolution developed centralization, but at the same time it increased the extent, the attributes, and the number of agents of governmental power. Napoleon completed this state machinery. The legitimate monarchy and the July monarchy added nothing but a greater division of labor. Finally, in its struggle against the revolution, the Parliamentary Republic found itself compelled to strengthen, along with repressive measures, the resources and centralization of governmental power. All revolutions perfected this machine instead of smashing it. The parties that contended in turn for domination regarded the possession of this huge state edifice as the principal spoils of the victor. End quote. In this remarkable argument, Marxism takes a tremendous step forward compared with the Communist Manifesto. In the latter, the question of the state is still treated in an extremely abstract manner, in the most general terms and expressions. In the above-quoted passage, the question is treated in a concrete manner, and the conclusion is extremely precise, definite, practical, and palpable. All previous revolutions perfected the state machine, whereas it must be broken, smashed. This conclusion is the chief and fundamental point in the Marxist theory of the state, and it is precisely this fundamental point which has been completely ignored by the dominant official social democratic parties and, indeed, distorted, as we shall see later, by the foremost theoretician of the Second International, Karl Kotsky. The Communist Manifesto gives a general summary of history which compels us to regard the state as the organ of class rule and leads us to the inevitable conclusion that the proletariat cannot overthrow the bourgeoisie without first winning political power, without attaining political supremacy, without transforming the state into the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and that this proletarian state will begin to wither away immediately after its victory because the state is unnecessary and cannot exist in a society in which there are no class antagonisms. 
the question as to how, from the point of view of historical development, the replacement of the bourgeois by the proletarian state is to take place is not raised here. This is the question Marx raises and answers in 1852. True to his philosophy of dialectical materialism, Marx takes as his basis the historical experience of the great years of revolution, 1848 to 1851. Here, as everywhere else, his theory is a summing up of experience, illuminated by a profound philosophical conception of the world and a rich knowledge of history. The problem of the state is put specifically. How did the bourgeois state, the state machine necessary for the rule of the bourgeoisie, come into being historically? What changes did it undergo? What evolution did it perform in the course of bourgeois revolutions and in the face of the independent actions of the oppressed classes? What are the tasks of the proletariat in relation to the state machine? The centralized state power that is peculiar to bourgeois society came into being in the period of the fall of absolutism. Two institutions most characteristic of this state machine are the bureaucracy and the standing army. In their works, Marx and Engels repeatedly show that the bourgeoisie are connected with these institutions by thousands of threads. Every worker's experience illustrates this connection in an extremely graphic and impressive manner. From its own bitter experience, the working class learns to recognize this connection. That is why it so easily grasps and so firmly learns the doctrine which shows the inevitability of this connection, a doctrine which the petty bourgeois democrats either ignorantly and flippantly deny, or still more flippantly admit in general, while forgetting to draw appropriate practical conclusions. The bureaucracy and the standing army are a parasite on the body of bourgeois society, a parasite created by the internal antagonisms which rend that society, but a parasite which chokes all its vital pores. The Kotskyite opportunism now prevailing in official social democracy considers the view that the state is a parasitic organism to be the peculiar and exclusive attribute of anarchism. It goes without saying that this distortion of Marxism is of vast advantage to those Philistines who have reduced socialism to the unheard-of disgrace of justifying and prettifying the imperialist war by applying it to the concept of defense of the fatherland, but it is unquestionably a distortion nevertheless. The development, perfection, and strengthening of the bureaucratic and military apparatus proceeded during all the numerous bourgeois revolutions which Europe has witnessed since the fall of feudalism. In particular, it is the petty bourgeois who are attracted to the side of the big bourgeoisie and are largely subordinated to them through this apparatus, which provides the upper sections of the peasants, small artisans, tradesmen, and the like with comparatively comfortable, quiet, and respectable jobs, raising the holders above the people. Consider what happened in Russia during the six months following February 27, 1917. The official posts which formerly were given by preference to the Black Hundreds have now become the spoils of the cadets, Mensheviks, and social revolutionaries. Nobody has really thought of introducing any serious reforms. Every effort has been made to put them off until the Constituent Assembly meets, and to steadily put off its convocation until after the war. But there has been no delay, no waiting for the Constituent Assembly, in the matter of dividing the spoils of getting the lucrative jobs of ministers, deputy ministers, governors-general, etc., etc. The game of combinations that has been played in forming the government has been, in essence, 
only an expression of this division and redivision of the spoils, which has been going on above and below, throughout the country, in every department of central and local government. The six months between February 27th and August 27th, 1917, can be summed up, objectively summed up beyond all dispute, as follows. Reforms shelved, distribution of official jobs accomplished, and mistakes in the distribution corrected by a few redistributions. But the more the bureaucratic apparatus is redistributed among the various bourgeois and petty bourgeois parties, among the cadets, socialist revolutionaries, and Mensheviks in the case of Russia, the more keenly aware the oppressed classes and the proletariat at their head become of their irreconcilable hostility to the whole of bourgeois society. Hence the need for all bourgeois parties, even for the most democratic and revolutionary democratic among them, to intensify repressive measures against the revolutionary proletariat, to strengthen the apparatus of coercion, i.e. the state machine. This course of events compels the revolution to concentrate all its forces of destruction against the state power, and to set itself the aim, not of improving the state machine, but of smashing and destroying it. It was not logical reasoning, but actual developments, the actual experience of 1848-51, to that led to the matter being presented in this way. The extent to which Marx held strictly to the solid ground of historical experience can be seen from the fact that, in 1852, he did not yet specifically raise the question of what was to take the place of the state machine to be destroyed. Experience had not yet provided material for dealing with this question which history placed on the agenda later on, in 1871. In 1852, all that could be established with the accuracy of scientific observation was that the proletarian revolution had approached the task of concentrating all its forces of destruction against the state power, of smashing the state machine. Here the question may arise. Is it correct to generalize the experience, observations, and conclusions of Marx to apply them to a field that is wider than the history of France during the three years 1848-51? to Before proceeding to deal with this question, let us recall a remark made by Engels and then examine the facts. In his introduction to the third edition of the 18th Brumaire, Engels wrote, quote, France is the country where, more than anywhere else, the historical class struggles were each time fought out to a finish, and where, consequently, the changing political forms within which they move and in which their results are summarized have been stamped in the sharpest outlines. The center of feudalism in the Middle Ages, the model country since the Renaissance of a unified monarchy based on social estates, France demolished feudalism in the Great Revolution and established the rule of the bourgeoisie in a classical purity unequaled by any other European land and the struggle of the upward-striving proletariat against the ruling bourgeoisie appeared here in an acute form unknown elsewhere, end quote. The last remark is out of date in so much as since 1871 there has been a lull in the revolutionary struggle of the French proletariat, although, long as this lull may be, it does not at all preclude the possibility that in the coming proletarian revolution, France may show herself to be the classic country of the class struggle to a finish. Let us, however, cast a general glance over the history of the advanced countries at the turn of the century. We shall see that the same process went on more slowly, in more varied forms, in a much wider field. On the one hand, the development of parliamentary power both in the republican countries, 
France, America, Switzerland, and in the monarchies, Britain, Germany to a certain extent, Italy, the Scandinavian countries, etc. On the other hand, a struggle for power among the various bourgeois and petty bourgeois parties which distributed and redistributed the spoils of office, with the foundations of bourgeois society unchanged, and lastly, the perfection and consolidation of the executive power, of its bureaucratic and military apparatus. There is not the slightest doubt that these features are common to the whole of the modern evolution of all capitalist states in general. In the last three years of 1848 to 51, France displayed, in a swift, sharp, concentrated form, the very same process of development which are peculiar to the whole capitalist world. Imperialism, the era of bank capital, the era of gigantic capitalist monopolies, of the development of monopoly capitalism into state monopoly capitalism, has clearly shown an unprecedented growth in its bureaucratic and military apparatus in connection with the intensification of repressive measures against the proletariat, both in the monarchical and in the freest republican countries. World history is now undoubtedly leading, on an incomparably larger scale than in 1852, to the concentration of all the forces of the proletarian revolution on the destruction of the state machine. What the proletariat will put in its place is suggested by the highly instructive material furnished by the Paris Commune.